when Monica Culbert's husband was sentenced to life imprisonment, her life and the life of their two young sons, aged just six and four, changed completely. In this Kuhuna Octawigian podcast, she talks about being the wife of a political prisoner, about the challenges and trying to maintain a sense of normality for their children, and about the community solidarity that helped her and many others through those hard times. I'm Monica Culbert, um, and my husband's, well, I call him Michael Culbert because his mother always called him Michael Culbert, but everybody else calls him Michael, <laughs> and that's natural. Um, we were going together from we were 16, 17, and we got married when we were 21 in 1971 during internment week. Um, I was just starting teaching and Michael was um, first of all a tax officer and then he became a social worker and worked in St Pat's. We had two sons, Rory and Michael. Rory was born in 1973 and Michael was born in 1975. And um, they were young and we were happy, but we were had been, you know, really influenced by what was going on at the time. Michael's granny and his two aunts had been burnt out of Bombay Street and, you know, a lot of people we knew had been hurt. And um, so we were very much damaged by the situation. Um, in 1977, Michael was lifted um, and taken to Castle Ray and he was interrogated. Um, and eventually, after being badly beaten, he was let out. But he was told before he was let out that in either six months he'd be dead or in jail. And his name was given out by Paisley in uh, the House of Commons under privilege about um, he worked in social work, about a social worker working with prisoners, etc. So that was our background. And, you know, I'll never forget the first time he was lifted. It was, I think, four or five in the morning. And I heard the knock at the door and went down the stairs and opened the door. And the army and police were and I did, And I shouted up the stairs, the army are here. <laughs> so we were raided from top to bottom. And... Um, I always remember the different things. I had um, a few coins from money and I had a French book and something else and they, they took them and I never got them back. And they said, they used, I don't know what, but we never got them back. So he got out after three days and Father Fall, he spoke to Father Fall and he spoke to different people. Um, but that always sort of hankered in your mind. And then in May 1978, he was arrested and taken to Castle White. We had been up in Waterfoot. Um, because I was off from school for three days with our boys. Our Rory was just, he was just under five and Michael was just three. And we had just come back home on a Saturday evening. And as we arrived at the door, obviously somebody must have been watching. As we arrived at the door, the army arrived and um, he was taken away. And I remember him giving me his wallet and saying, keep that wallet. And he was taken away. And they came in and raided our house um, and they took it apart. And I had two young boys and they wouldn't let anybody in. And my sister-in-law, good enough of her next door, came in and she sat with me and it was, took it apart. I remember hearing the phone ringing. It was my mummy <laughs> uh, and my sister. And they asked to speak to me and they said, no, no, and wouldn't let her. Oh, and what did they say? Something about her husband's a bad boy or something like that, stupid to them. But nobody could get in. And I was sitting with a, ba a child that needed a bottle and different things. But anyway, they took the house apart and went away. And I'll never forget one of the sayings that the soldier said, one of the soldiers said to me, a young soldier said, um, I think he must have been, he must have felt sorry for what they were doing. He was, all I was saying, he was young. And he said, you know, I have to say, I've never, I've, I've never raided a cleaner house. I felt like hitting him. I just felt like thumping him. And then the sergeant came in and said, um, and I forgot to say at the start, I should go back. 
Father Paul at that time did a leaflet about what you should do when they come in, to, if they come in to raid your house. You know, say you're going with them, say you're not allowed to do this. And of course, of course me, five foot four, with two wee ones, and the paratrooper and whoever came in said, I'm going with you and I'm going to do this. And they sort of said, sit there and don't move. Um, and one of them came in and said, you know, I'm sure you could do with a cup of tea. We could do with a cup of tea. And I went, yeah, well, you can wait for it. I mean, even though I was very quiet and timid at that time, there was no mission of me making them tea. So that was Michael, and Michael was um, in Castlereagh for six days. And um, you couldn't get any information. You know, you could get nothing. And it was at that time, it was the talk of Castlereagh. And we all knew the terrible things that went on. So it was so traumatic and... My mother came up and stayed with me, and of course I went on to work. Didn't tell anybody, didn't tell, well, I told my principal, but didn't tell other people that Michael was, just went on about my business and hoped and prayed, and, but um, used to bring food up and clothes up, but he didn't, he didn't get them. And about the fourth day, I was up teaching, and I remember my principal and my brother-in-law coming into my classroom. He said, what are they doing here? And they said, can I talk to you? And I went, yeah. And I said, have you been listening to the news? And I said, sure, I don't, wouldn't listen to the news when I'm teaching. And they said, well, in Castle Ray, they've just said there's a, a man in his 20s has taken his own life. And they knew Michael was being questioned at that time. And they said, no, you know, it's not Michael. We don't know it's Michael, but we just wanted to tell you. I just didn't know what to do. And I went up to Castle Ray with my uncle then and um, asked him. And they just sort of went... No, can't give you any information. Just sort of laughed at me. Um, we found out it wasn't Michael, <coughs> but uh, the thought was there. So then, on Oliver Kelly was my solicitor, and he was very good, and his wife was very good. And um, then Oliver then told me that Michael was going to be charged, and I'd never been. I have to tell you this: I had never been in a police station in my life. Or, and on the Saturday, I think it was a Saturday, Oliver. Michael had been questioned continuously for six days in Castlereagh and um, Oliver said Michael's been charged and he, I went up with him to Lisburn um, in this wee pokey place and Michael came in and I'll never forget the look of him, he was horrendous looking and um, they charged him the whole list of things. I couldn't, you know, now I couldn't even remember, I could read it and know what it is but I couldn't remember what they said at that time <clears throat> and I got speaking to Michael for a few minutes and he was being moved to Cumberland Road and uh, it was quite unbelievable then you know the, the newspaper and the reporters and the different things and your family's telling your families Michael's family were, were stunned and uh, my own family were stunned too but we're all very supportive so we knew at the time he was being accused of murder and membership and whatnot and at the time of the murder there was no evidence Michael was in work um, it was an alleged verbal statement and all of this but it didn't matter I was glad he was out of Castlereagh and he was alive because I knew during the time that he was there a man had died um, so I went home and then people told you to go up to Crumlin Road and you get a visit and whatnot. so I got I got the first visit to Crumlin Road um, it's funny how your mind I, I'm trying to work out time wise was it a Friday or a Saturday I went I went up to, to Crumlin Road to visit and I said I'm going on my own don't want anybody to go with me um, and it was awful. Um, and I went in and see him. He just says, well, I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. But the case will be appealed. And, or, you know, my solicitor's Oliver Kelly, he'll fight it. And, and we actually thought, 
you know, he's going to get out. This, not, this is not going to, this, this can't wash because there's no evidence, there's nothing. This alleged verbal statement. Um, and I remember I cried sore and I walked home from Crumlin Road Jail to my house, which would be about five miles away. And I cried the whole way home. <laughs> and I said when I went home, that's it. I am not going to cry again. And of course, I walked in my door and the front door was broken because our Rory had fired a ball down the stairs at Michael and the ball went through the door. So that was back to the, norma the normality of life. <laughs> People were very good. People, my family were very supportive. And um, so Michael was in Crumlin Road on remand and you had to go and visit and go up once um, once a week or something, I think it was. I can't really remember the time. But I always remember that time. People... I suppose I was a teacher and Michael was a social worker. And some people looked at you as if to say, what are they or who are they? And some people actually stopped talking to me. And other people were very supportive and you could all with your life. I couldn't have done without my family and my very good friends, Sally and Jackie and others. But I used to visit um, Michael weekly. And I decided very early on because it was almost like a week. People were constantly at your house supporting you. It was as if, and I said, this has to stop. I have to try and get some normality in my life because I don't know how long Michael's going to be in jail, but I have to ensure I'm, I'm the only one here for my two children. Michael was lifted on the 6th or 7th of May. He was in Crumlin Road on the 13th and Michael's father was ill and he died on the 26th of May. And um, Oliver Kelly went in and told um, didn't tell Michael, wasn't allowed to tell Michael. He, he notified the authorities and they went in and shouted through the, the um, door, your father's dead. And he got 24 hours um, bail for the funeral and it was very sad, very hard, um, the funeral and the bail. And uh, he was laid back to the jail after the bail and he was put in solitary. So, I mean, it taunts me about his father, and I imagine it taunts Michael about his father. And then three days later, Rory was five. So I knew I had to get some normality to my life and to my children's life. And it, because they were going, when people were in the house, they were going bananas and people were spoiling them and being good to them. And I knew it couldn't go on. So we went back to school and um, Oliver was fighting the case and people just thought he would get off because there was no evidence. So I, and funny, I have a sack of letters in my house. I must have written to every government in the world, every MP in the world about Michael's case. I drew it up. I worked with the trade unions and we did a booklet about um, human rights abuse and about um, the abuse that Michael got and wrote the conveyor belt system of the Diplock courts. And my, I sent letters all around the world. Uh, and I got a lot of replies from English MPs and American MPs supporting the case and Michael became a, a prisoner of conscience of the Amnesty International but at the end of the day it didn't make any difference. While he was in on remand in um, Crumlin Road Jail we used to visit and our kids were young and Crumlin Road was very confined and they used to swing in the bars. <laughs> they used to, I mean our heads were astray because they didn't understand and you know the same with other children. But you developed a bond. Everybody knew you didn't know what you were doing and they didn't know what they were doing, but you supported one another. While I was in Crumlin Road, I would either get the taxi into town and walk across and up. And God help me, I used to make my kids walk up too. You know, when I think of it. Because 
Michael had an old aunt and she sort of said, could you not tell your children that he's in the hospital or he's away working? Because she didn't want them hurt. And I said, no, they're going to know. You know, they have to, they'll grow up with it. They'll go, I don't want them not to know they're not a, even though they'll know in a very restricted sense. I think we they visited every week or mostly every week and they used to come up and they'd talk rubbish for them and that kept Michael going and kept myself going. So then um, when it came to the trial, I mean, I would have went every day to the trial um, and I was very lucky that the, the school I worked in supported me um, and other people supported me. And um, But the three judges, the, the judges were there, the judge was there, McDermott, and uh, I mean... You know, the police said we didn't write notes down at the time. We wrote them afterwards. He didn't write. They just lied, and you knew they lied, and he, and the judge knew they lied too. But he more or less said, "Well, it was in hindsight they made mistakes." But he said Michael lied. You know, one lied, but the other didn't. And at the end of it, Michael was given a life sentence, and I just couldn't believe it. I had written the letters I had written for a year and a half, thinking he's going to come home. So in December. Uh, 79, Michael was sentenced to life imprisonment. And by that age, my Rory was six and Michael was four. And uh, I went up to the cache the day after. He was brought to the cache. It was a Friday. And to this day, I say it was the coldest day I ever remember. But I think it must have been shock. I must, But it was cold anyway. I went up. I think I went, I can't remember whether it was my sister-in-law or myself. I went in and saw him. And as Michael had, was go, had gone on the blanket. And um, I knew he was safe, but he came out and, you know, he, he just said he was not wearing prison clothes, and rightly so. He wasn't a criminal, and he was a political prisoner, and he was right to do what he did. But it was hard seeing it, and it was cold, and it was frightening. I was, what, I suppose 28, 29. I was only, you know, you know when I look back, I was, old, I was young, um, but I didn't think I was, you see. I thought I was a very mature mother with two children. So... Um, he was going on appeal. And because he was going on appeal, you could get a 15-minute visit every day um, to talk about, about his appeal. So I said I would take two visits. My friend would take another visit and somebody else would take another visit so that we could get him out. But, you know, at the time, I didn't realise the turmoil and the trauma that he had to come through to get out. He got beaten and different things, but that was fighting the system. It was their way of continuing the conflict, you know. But I went up and, and you would talk, you know, for example, St. Gaul's was very much part of our life, as it still is. And we would say on a Monday or Tuesday, either myself or my friend Sally would go up and I would say, that man, Gaul, said, there's four very good points in it, in this case of yours, you know, on a Monday. And the next Monday, there's two good points in it. But that was to let him know that St. Gaul's won. You know, simple things like that. Because if, I, if we hadn't have taken... The appeal visits, I would have, I don't even know if I got a visit at the time. The visits were eventually became once a month. But we took those appeal visits and sometimes you were turfed out in your ear after one minute because, you know, you said stupid things. Um, and I was, as I say, I had good friends. And uh, we also at the time, you brought in comms, you brought in messages in different ways. And um, you brought in tobacco and the results, and I remember, I have to say this, and it isn't about me, it's about my friend Sally. <laughs> I just, when her price was going up, I said, well, you have to bring in a, a tobacco. She said, what's the I says, I don't know, but get an ounce of tobacco. But I meant she gets it and then breaks it up 
But I didn't explain fully that she couldn't get a whole ounce in. So she squashed this whole ounce together and she managed to bring it in. Like I says, in the name of God, Sally. But I had, so people did that. You know, we brought things in and that was your way of communicating. He would have been the results on a Monday morning. On a Monday, he brought, we got the results in of the GAA in the week. So different messages and, and that was the, I suppose in a way that was communication. That was us keeping in touch and others keeping in touch. And you used to see different people out in visits when you were there and you would know them and learn to nod to them and whatnot. Um, you know, because I would have seen Thomas McElwee and I would have seen... Michael met Francis Hughes in the remand and then Francis became a good friend inside. So you would have seen those people on the visits and you would have gone up on the minibus, you know, from uh, Sevastopol Street up to the prison and then on the, the prison minibuses inside and you got to know people. You might not know the names, but you talked and there was this sense of companionship. And, and funny, I think that sense of community and family has always stayed. Even from Michael has come come out of prison and he's out, what, 20, 30 years now. Um, Michael did serve 15 and a half years anyway of a sentence. His appeal, the judge slept, one of the judges slept halfway through his appeal. You know, the appeal went on and then we had the appeal and I had lawyers come over from America because I'd been writing to lawyers and different, and they came and watched the appeal and yeah, the appeal was turned down. So Michael had, it was in for life. So I, I was coming out, he was lifted in 78 and you came to the hunger strike and I was only recovering from the shop of him going into prison when then the first hunger strike came and you and you had a dread in your stomach even though, you know, I had two children and hope because, you know, it, it could be any of them and you knew what they believed in and you believed in it yourself but you were terrified. But in a way, you couldn't let, I suppose they thought they were protecting us and we thought they were protecting, we were protecting them. You know, everything in the light in the garden was rosy. I went to work. I looked after my children. I told Michael all the biz. I wrote faithfully every week. And even from an early age, I got my children to write and draw pictures. And, and to this day, I have the letters in the house. I made a box of photos up for both of the boys there. I was really trying to get all the rubbish out of my house about last year during lockdown. And I made this box. And they have I have letters from 19, say 1980, when they were uh, letters from them right through letters and photographs, and they used to tell them about St. Gauls and different things. And they have those memories of those letters. And um, we have a big, I've still got a big box of letters I haven't gone through upstairs. Um, but there was that continuous bond. And it was, it, was, um, it, it was your way, I suppose, of keeping in touch. I wanted the boys to grow up. I also wanted them to understand that what happened was wrong, that their father was a political prisoner and they were to be proud of him. But they weren't to be antagonistic to anybody else, and they were to, you know, hold their head up high. And it's hard for children, I think, too. When when I look back on it, you know, I gave them everything I could give them, and they were lucky in that respect. I worked, I had a job, and I was able to keep my family. But I look back at people who suffered because their husbands were in prison, and they maybe hadn't a job, and the two or three children, and had to struggle to get the money to survive. And it was a hard, hard time for women, because. You focused on the people inside and you forgot about the people outside who found it hard to cope. And some people find it, we all find it hard in different ways, but some people find it harder than others. And I often think back, um, I don't think the women have been recognised enough because the struggle couldn't have gone on. None of the struggles could have gone on without the women. 
The women have come to the fore in their time, but women were always there. From, from then, and from, you know, I remember the women, especially, some of them, when I see them, I can't remember their names. You get old, you, but they're still in affiliation. You may not have seen them for years, but you remember the bond you had because you shared that, that pain and, and also you shared the um, wanting to do the best because you knew it was right. Um, and coming up to 81, you know, people, you were terrified because the support turned in 81, you know, after with the hunger strike and with Bobby's death, people became the support, you know, the support grew. But before, you know, we did white line pickets and, and I, I used to stand on the Stewartstown Road and get dogs if there was a woman come up the road and she used to abuse you standing, called you all the names of the day for standing in the road. I don't know if the woman was quite healthy, but, you know, we used to stand there and get dogs abuse for doing white line pickets. And I remember, um, you know, there was teachers organised white line pickets too and people used to say, why, why are you standing in a white line picket? And I'm going, why do you think? You know, my husband's on the blanket protest. Bobby Sands has died. I always remember the day, the night Bobby, the day Bobby died. It was a bright sunny day and, I, you know, I woke up to it and I thought, oh my God, it, to me it was just horrendous. And I could hear somebody doing a lawnmower and it was in the morning and I was walking up Leonard and I'm going, why is that man even worrying about cutting his lawn? Bobby Sands has died and I, there, there's nothing more important than that and yet life seemed to go on. Um, and, and we we joined different groups. I helped in Lenadoon. I went on picket lines. I went um, on marches. Um, I remember the funerals really um, very clearly. I always remember Francis Hughes because <coughs> Michael used to tell me <coughs> at night, and they talked about where they lived when they were in. And he said Francis described where he lived, the lane and the trees. And he says everybody could picture, you know, where they lived. So Michael had described that to me, and we went. Myself and my friend Sally and another lady, Eilish, we went on the bus to Francis Hughes' funeral. And of course, the bus was attacked coming home. And when we got there, they cut it. We couldn't walk along the, the road and we went across the fields. And I suppose I, I'm old fashioned. To me, when you're going to a funeral, you dress up. You, you know, and so I had a lovely suit on and lovely shoes and I thought I was lovely. As I was walking through the fields, I fell in the river. So, you know... But I went and we didn't get near the graveyard really, but we were there in solidarity and we looked and I could I could see and I could visualise where Francis lived because Michael had talked about it. And, you know, during different times, people talked about different things and you knew everybody, I knew Martin and they were, in their own way, they, they, they fought the fight. They weren't allowed a wedding ring in. You know, they weren't allowed to wear wedding rings. So, of course, you smuggled it in and the next thing Michael appears with a wedding ring. They weren't allowed desert boots. Michael loved desert boots. And then, uh, God help his friends. His friends, you know, and my brother and whatnot went in with their desert boots and they came out in sandals. Michael ended up with the desert boots. But that was continuously fighting the fight. And also, I remember um, bringing in a silver Celtic cross and Martin had it. And I think Martin was wearing it when he died. You know, and those things, and that was a constant, that was your attachment to, to, to people. But in, in 81, when you went to the funerals, um, there was a fear because at some of those funerals, I mean, at Joe McDonald's, you could have been killed. And there was a plastic, another at the side of St. Agnes's one day when plastic bullets were, I mean, they shot and I thought, Jesus, I'm going to die and I have two children. But you did it because you had to. And I had the, but people, people sometimes sort of looked at you and says, how can you cope? But I had to cope. 
because I had to be there for my children. I had to make, get them to grow up, to understand that we all fight in different ways for what's right and wrong. And I'm very lucky that they turned out wonderful boys, um, but they went up every week or every other week to see Michael. They got the letters from Michael, and Michael always used to find out when they did something wrong, because somebody tell them, you know, and they would always know because they'd get a special visit. <laughs> they'd get a special visit, when, and they'd go up and talk to him, you know. But it was, I kept that relationship going. And even then when they, Michael came out, Rory was 19, 20, and, and, and I'm very lucky with St. Gauls, and with, because they had been so much in touch, they have a, a, still a wonderful relationship. But that time of 81 was a time when I became, I was, Pat Sheikin's father, Hugh and Mary, were very good friends in my family. And I used to go down and talk to Hugh and Mary and they were devastated because they had a daughter, Louise died and then Pat. And Hugh was so good to me and, and my boys and would talk and joke with them and shout at them when they were in the prison. And we built a bond that was always there because you knew what you were doing was right. You knew it was frightening and it was fearful, but you could not do it. Um, and as you say, I always tried to, so my boys would grow up and know what their father did was right. He was there and he was fighting what was what should be fought and that we'd get justice in the end and, and, and you will get justice in the end. But um, it was hard in that I was young. I suppose if you, told, if I, if you were to ask me now, um, if I knew 40 years ago that I would have, you know, if I had hindsight to say that happened, I'd say, no, it couldn't. I couldn't do that. But if you were to ask me if I was to go back 40 years, would I do it again? I would. Because I believe in what Michael did. I believe in what all of us did, the struggle for freedom and justice. And, and that's, I suppose, what's kept us going and made us what we are. There were good memories. Uh, you know, I, I know I have sort of got emotional, but there were times you laughed and times you had fun. I mean... Um, my boys got two duffel coats. Um, my brother played soccer and he got a bonus and he bought them two duffel coats for Christmas. And we went up on a visit for Michael. Um, and as I say, I had one of my cracker parcels with me, you know. And our Rory, when we got through, it went into Rory's pocket. And Rory, and like, my God, Rory was six. Rory knew <laughs> that when he went to the visit, his daddy would get it. And as Rory, and the screw was at the corner, and as Rory was, you know, getting to his daddy, our Michael turned around and says, how come you always get to do that and I'm not allowed to do it? <laughs> and I, I mean, Michael and I just froze. And I don't know whether the screw <laughs> murdered him when he was inside. But it was so funny. Our Michael was raging. And he was fat. He was four at the time. But I, those things came back and we laugh about them. Um, and they're, they're wonderful memories because it's shared. And I'm very lucky. I realise other people hurt more. I don't mean they hurt more, but maybe they, if you didn't have support you found it very hard. And even when you had support, there were times it was very lonely because you were you were kind of a widow, but you weren't a widow and people watched and um well you did what you did what you had to do and um I'm very proud of it. But um it still makes me very emotional when I talk about it. <laughs>